All right, if you are able, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. We are going to start in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And I am reading from the God's word translation which may not be familiar to many of you, but um, Pastor Jim and Austin encouraged me to say just a word about why. Uh, This is a Bible translation I have the privilege to work on in my day job, uh, and I design Bibles and publications for them. So Genesis 2, 18 to 25. And the context is in the garden with Adam. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is right for him. The Lord God had formed all the wild animals and all the birds out of the ground. Then he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called each creature became its name. So the man named all the domestic animals, all the birds, and all the wild animals. But the man found no helper who was right for him. So the Lord God caused him to fall into a deep sleep. While the man was sleeping, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God formed a woman from the rib that he had taken from the man. He brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be named woman because she was taken from man. That is why a man will leave his father and mother and will be united with his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, but they weren't ashamed of it. Now turning over to Luke 16, verse 18. In the context here is Jesus had been teaching his disciples and then confronting the Pharisees. Luke 16, 18. Jesus says, Any man who divorces his wife to marry another woman is committing adultery. The man who marries a woman divorced in this way is committing adultery. You may be seated. Thank you, Brother Vance. Brother Vance, so thankful for your ministry as deacon of care and for your day job of producing Bibles. Thankful for Linda and you. You know, back in the 1960s, um, we experienced, we, the West, experienced what was called the sexual revolution and many people thought many materialists progressive scholars said well now that we've got the so-called technology and now that we're bringing along the intellectual framework of things like no fault uh, you know divorce and uh, you know sex as you please a lot of people thought that this old institution of marriage would disintegrate that in a short time there'd be no such thing as one man and one woman coming together, pledging their lives uh, before one another uh, till death do them part. And I think as you even read those commentaries today, many decades later, that they're still shocked at how surprisingly durable marriage has been. That especially in contexts like places where we live, you know, places like Avon, where you tend to have, you know, folks that that are... um, you know, uh, middle class, upper middle class, and educated, marriage has proven to be remarkably durable. And even I'll meet often 
uh, young couples who are living together, and I ask them some questions about it. This is, you know, cohabiting, living together before marriage, and I probe a little bit, say, well, you know, is this a, uh, would you ever go outside the bounds of this relationship? No, we'd never do that. We try to be faithful to one another, and uh, we plan to be with each other a long time, and I'm just thinking to myself, really what this is, is a cheap imitation of marriage, uh, that they're behaving a lot like this institution we call marriage, but doing it in a regard that uh, takes the blessings without any of the obligations, which we would say is no marriage of all. Yet there's still this deep down, I guess the point being, uh, deep down within people is a quest for the one. And that is ingrained for those of us who are Christians, uh, those of us who follow the Lord Jesus, who are students of the Bible, we realize that this is deeply ingrained in us, as a matter of our nature. It is part of God's good design. Now, I realize today, before we go any further, that the passage that we read, uh, this is the kind of thing that lands a lot of different ways. Some of you see the title, you're thinking about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and you've been uh, married a long time, and your marriage, praise God, has been a source of great joy for you that you followed God's design and you're delighted, and, and quite frankly, you like talking about it. Praise God. For others, you see the D word here, divorce. It conjures up all kinds of pain. And maybe you yourself have been through a divorce, one of the routinely the most dramatic, traumatic things a person can go through, the most stressful things. Others close to you, maybe your own parents, you went through this and you said, this area, this idea of marriage and, and divorce and remarriage is one of a lot of pain for me. Or you can think even of the third category, you're married, but it's, it's not good. And instead of being an institution of strength and joy, it's, it's been one of just real hardship. And I hope today that as we see what Jesus is saying here, that there are some distinctives about Christian marriage and ways in which we can uh, make inroads in a way where the church responds in a Christ-like way to those who are divorced or who those who are in a difficult place. So what's this verse doing here? I think that's a, a good place to start. Now, some of you are very astute, and you're saying, well, Shaw is always giving spirited defense of going right through the Bible. Why did he skip verse 18 last week? That's because we had the young man, John Petticord, giving his first sermon. I said, John, I'm going to give you the easy topic of hell, and we'll come back to divorce next week. So... <laughs> Uh, he did a very good job, and I'm very thankful for John. But we'll come back to this one verse today, verse 18. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, and you're, you know, you're reading along the Bible, in ver uh, chapter 15, you've got some memorable passages, right? The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, uh, famously the parable of the two lost sons, and then Jesus is talking about money and two ways to live. And then here, verse 18, it's like, you know, you, you get a shot. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. You say, what, what is Jesus doing? Uh, it, it seems like an odd placement to interject these heavy matters of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And here's the basic idea. I think you, you, we have to go back to verses 16 and 17 to see why Jesus would interject this line on divorce. So if you remember, Jesus, in just that previous passage, is confronting the Pharisees about the two fundamental ways to live your life. It comes right through all history. On the one side, you've got our impulse uh, that we come into the world wanting to justify ourselves. Uh, which is a fancy way of saying, I want to make up my own morality. 
Uh, it manifests itself in contemporary American culture as, you know, rights-based or feelings-based. I'm going to do what feels good to me uh, whenever I want to do it. And then I'll justify that and say, well, I'm a pretty good chap. I'm better than all the others. Verse what we confront in the gospel of our Lord, which is universal sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And what Jesus is saying is, don't you Pharisees know that the Old Testament, he calls it here the Law and the Prophets, is number, another way of saying uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament's, the Old Testament was pointing towards the gospel. It was pointing towards the good news that God would send a Savior into the world. That's what John was preaching. And if you stop there, if you stop in Luke 16, 16, which some in the history of the church have, then you can come up with the idea that Christians should not pay much attention to Israel and the Hebrew Bible. You say, okay, it was good for a time, now that we have Jesus, let's get rid of all that uh, ancient Near Eastern literature, you know, focus on the, the Greco-Roman period, and we, we just have Jesus who, you know, let's get rid of it. But then he brings it back with verse 17. Notice again, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus is saying, don't think now that the gospel has manifested itself and the person, uh, he would say, myself, means that you disregard God's moral and timeless law. Rather, that's never going to happen. And in English, not, not one dotting in the I, not one crossing in the T will disappear from the law. The moral law is still binding on you fellows. And that then gives invitation to verse 18 about Jesus' strong defense of marriage. Because what was happening, and this is well-preserved in, you know, the rabbinical tradition, is that if you read, we won't go there today, but you can during the week, do, do, I encourage you to, Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. This is where Moses uh, permits divorce in the certificate of divorce. And there's a line in Deuteronomy 24, 1 that says, a, a husband may divorce his wife if he finds, in my English version, some indecency. And what the, the Pharisees and their different schools were doing at Jesus' time is that they were taking some indecency to mean anything at all. That a man could divorce his wife if she, you know, burned his food. He could divorce his wife if he just found a younger, thinner version. In other words, they were doing exactly what Jesus is putting his finger on. In other words, they're doing what they want to do and justifying it on a misinterpretation of God's law. Oh, some indecency, what does that mean? Divorce, under, I'll do whatever I want. And Jesus is bringing them back, saying, you're missing it. Don't you realize that marriage goes back way before Moses to creation itself? Good place to turn. Um, or I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn. But in Matthew 19, where Jesus is talking about this in a bit more length, and on the topic of marriage and divorce and remarriage, you're always looking at various passages and taking what Jesus is saying in a broad sense, but here is 19, Matthew 19 and verse 3. And the Pharisees come up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So they're bringing Jesus right into what would be at their time their, their debate on can you, can you just dismiss your wife whenever you want to, to do so based on, on how you're feeling. Jesus answered, 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, Jesus is saying Moses' permission of divorce was not giving you complete license to indulge your flesh and to treat people so terribly, but rather God invented marriage to be a permanent institution founded at the creation itself, and you guys once again are justifying yourselves instead of seeing what God's word is really about. That's why Jesus is saying this, the permanence of the moral law, the permanence of the institution of marriage. So again, we'll look at a couple of points on this front, and I hope they're encouraging to us, challenging to us, and then... Uh, teach us how to respond as a church family. So point number one, this verse clearly, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. What's Jesus really saying? What he's saying is God's design, God's good design is long, faithful, monogamous marriage. That he would design it in such a way where there'd be one man and one woman who are coming under his authority, that in that vow that they're pledging each other to always love one another under God's authority, and this is part of the created order itself. Now, before we go any further, I must make a very important cultural point. Because how often do I get the accusation, people say, well, you know, this prohibition on divorce in the Bible, here's just another example of how God's word is against women. And I must say, I, I, this always surprises me a little bit, and I, and I, and I have to gently push back, but gently but clearly, that the prohibition on divorce here is the protection of women. You see, friends, this was not so controversial that long ago, but we'll state the obvious. There is a kind of reproductive asymmetry, which is a fancy way of saying only one sex can be pregnant. So the question became, I would think all over in any civilized country, what prevents a man from just going out and having a good time knowing that he has a disproportional result of his sexual activity? Well, it's in the, the created order itself. God says, well, let's say that the men who bring young people into the world should stay committed to their mother and take responsibility for the children. That the solution, it's not a problem to be solved, but I'm talking to secular colleagues, say actually what you're seeking, what you're looking for is long-term monogamous marriage, that there would be uh, the man who brings children into the world would take responsibility for them. Now, if you read someone like a guy named Tom Holland. I, I understand there's a Tom Holland who's an actor. I'm not talking about, I don't know about these things, uh, you know, uh, new, new shows and things, but uh, not that Tom Holland. Uh, the, the, medieval, the medieval classical scholar Tom Holland. And he's a very smart man, and Tom Holland is not a Christian. He would occupy, I find, this very small, valuable space of being non-Christian academics who, who really state the facts and allow the facts to take them to the conclusion. So Tom Holland's dad was an atheist, his mom was an Anglican, he says, I, I, don't, I don't believe in God, but in his book Dominion, and he's doubled down on this, tripled down on this, he said, may there be no doubts about it, that the greatest cause and impulse 
for female dignity and equality is hands down the Judeo-Christian tradition that advocates for stable marriages for men to accept not only the benefits of sex, but also the obligations and responsibility so that the home might be stable and so that children might be raised in that kind of environment. Now, if I you know, take Holland, Holland's very open about this being a Christian, that's his whole thing. He said, for a long time, I thought I was a product of the Greeks and the Romans, only to learn that I'm actually, all of my impulses, all the things I believe, are actually a result of the Bible, uh, to his credit. But I'd go beyond this and say, I actually think you can make a perfectly secular case for stable unions. It first occurred to me actually reading Plato's Republic. So 400 years before Jesus or so, what Plato is saying is you'd have to be actually crazy as a, a society to not at all be concerned about the formation of the young people who will soon be in the polis. In other words, when a new baby is born in Avon, there should occur to me, uh, we're going to occupy the same town one day. And if this is a, you know, a young, insecure, and violent person as he grows up, this isn't going to bode well for Avon. That's Plato's argument. Now to go even a bit further, and I know it's hard but true, we talk about true things here. Paul Witz, who was a leading sociologist at NYU for many years, Paul Witz said many times, he said, you have to understand that all these sociology conferences and all the papers that have been given and all these academic departments, he says there's, there's an obvious kind of baseline rule that has become politically incorrect to say, but every sociologist knows it, and it's this. Almost all of our social ills can be correlated with fatherlessness. He said, it's any society, you start to discover what's going on, it's about the breakdown of this institution. And this is why God says marriage is important. Yes, there is a reproductive asymmetry that is not a problem to be solved, but rather it is to be done within the confines of marriage as he's designed it. And everyone who's honest, like a Tom Holland, said, yes, this has been a force of great good and great dignity for women. Now, to go a bit further, what is it about marriage that is so important to the timeless law of God that Jesus is reinforcing here? We, we do well to remember that God invented marriage, that this isn't, as you read, again, those in the 1960s kind of thinking, well, this was a bit of a fad, uh, you know, it's going to come and it's going to go. Uh, rather, we learn, which is the first passage we read, that God, it was God's idea. Uh, God said this is the, for the formation of people, for the expansion of his kingdom, one man and one woman, that he's the architect of it, and it's deeply ingrained in nature itself. Secondly, and you can go back and read this uh, this week, but if you caught when Vance was reading Genesis 2 and verse 22, if you put yourself there and you picture the movement, it's very interesting how God has given us. So Genesis 2.22 says that God made Eve right from the side of Adam, that she's right next to him. But then the second part of the verse says, well, God brought her to the man. Say, so how does that work? She's made right next to him. She's right there. But then God brought her to the man. And I think that a lot of commentators understand what's happening there is that we see our spouses as great gifts from God. And I have to remind myself often to continually receive the gift of my spouse. I wonder if you've thought about that in the last, I don't know, year or two. Well, here we are, another, you know, day number 8,000 of marriage or whatever it would be. 
um, you're plowing along, you say, wait a second here. God's designed this institution that I've received a wonderful gift of a companion and that this divine gifting is much different from the way that we have come to view a shaky and dissoluble contract. This is why in many wedding ceremonies you'll hear in the King James, you know, Matthew 19 and verse 6, what, what, what God brings together, let no man cast asunder, let, let no man separate, that it's a gift of God. I also think this is a good word for singles, you know, you, you want to be married and say, well, really, it, it's not a, a charge to be completely passive as uh, Brother Mark, who thinks a lot about these ideas, has helped me see. It's not about being completely passive, but there is a great sense of saying, yeah, I'm, I'm waiting on God's good time to bring just the right person and just the right time. And this is, a fun, you talk to people who, who have been married a long time, Christians who've been married a long time, and I find that they have a great sense of this. I can only call it a, a sense of like their marriage being from above is the best way I can capture it, that something's happened, that God's given them a great gift. You know, you grow up and say, well, I think I could marry a lot of people. I think I could be happy with a lot of, a lot of people in the church. And then you get married, and, and it's a, a Christ-centered marriage, and you look back and say, I can't imagine it being anybody else. It's been a gift from above, and it's a wonderful thing. Thirdly and crucially, that marriage, as God's designed it, illustrates the covenant between God and his people. This is what Ephesians 5 says clearly. In other words, the way that a husband and a wife relate to one another under Christ puts on display, it becomes a walking visual aid. So anywhere a Christian couple goes, you, you say, here's the visual aid of what it means to be in Christ. Oh, look at how they talk to each other. Are they tender? Are they caring? Are they kind? Is there grace in that marriage? Is there forgiveness? Is there appropriate roles being lived out of love and respect, sacrificial love and respect, male headship and so forth? Say, this is God's good design, and it opens up Christ's love for his people. Now, I ask you, how much do you think young people in our culture need examples of unconditional love this side of heaven? Now, as flawed as long-term marriages are, as many troubles as we face in the married life, you say Paul is clear about it, marriage is hard, it's flawed. But there is something to be said about a husband and a wife who would make it 10 and 20 and 30, and keep that vow. The vow is not a pledge. It's yesterday. Did a wedding here. Say, the vow is not a statement of I love you today. Not very profound. Two 25-year-olds say, I really like you. You're pretty. You're cute. Whatever. Not very profound. What is profound is the vow is saying, I will always love you. Even when it's hard, I will sacrifice Last hour, Sandy Mancuso was down here. I remember Sandy's parents when they celebrated their 70th anniversary. I was so touched by that. I said, I hope I even live to 70, um, you know. And uh, there's something really profound in that, something really good in that, good and right and true and beautiful. And that's what we're about. Okay, how about biblical affirmation too? I'll read it. The biblical affirmations, every member of our church has accepted this truth, so I hope it recaptures much of what we've been talking about already, but it reads like this. God has ordained that the family is an institution established to accomplish his purpose in Christ, and the foundation of the family is marriage. Marriage, according to the scriptures, is between one man and one woman, and the blessings, listen to this, the blessings and obligations 
of marriage are permanent. They are legitimately terminated by death, adultery, or desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Husbands and wives have joint responsibility for the physical and spiritual well-being of one another and their children in marriage. However, God has appointed men to exercise loving, corporal, and spiritual leadership within their homes and to be the primary agents for the furtherance of the Christian faith within their own families. You can see how that's an encapsulation of what the Bible said. God has ordained it. You can't reinvent it. Say, well, the, you know, this isn't America, but this is. Say, no, God, God's, it comes from above. It's really about Christ more than it is about my own satisfaction or my happiness, that it has its purpose. Maybe you're here today, you never thought about marriage having a purpose. Say, oh, I just thought, you know, kind of where I, say marriage has this profound purpose of, of ministry. The purpose is in Christ, that it has blessings and obligations. Anything worth doing has obligations. And as we come under God, as we live this out, it is his good plan. Now, since I'm talking about sensitive things, I thought I'd get them all in in one Sunday. Is that all right? <laughs> all right. Here we go. Happens with some regularity. Christian grows up in the church, go off to college. They find a really handsome, really, you know, really handsome guy, really pretty girl who doesn't believe in Jesus. Is this okay? Well, they're coming along, you know, good church. They come to church with me, and, you know, there's some, you know, they're not, not another faith or anything like that. What's the real problem there? Why, why is Shaw so sensitive about this? Because if you have accepted what is said before, that the God's invented this, that it has its purpose in the gospel, that there are children often involved that need to be raised, that need a coherent message from mom and dad, that marriage, you know, is all these things interlinked, it's very hard to do that. I would say impossible to do that if one of the spouses doesn't believe in Jesus. So it has nothing to do with not liking the, per the person, or they can be a wonderful person and, and, and getting on for a time, but if you really believe there's a purpose, a God-ordained purpose in your marriage, then it's really hard to do that when one is not faithfully following Jesus. And as he is the husband and wife follow Jesus, that they become closer together. You can think of an equilateral triangle. You've got husband here and wife here and Jesus at the top. The closer they grow to Jesus, look what's happening. The closer they, they grow together. That's God's design. So... This is why, for many years, as a minister would officiate, that there was a staying in the, the order of service, the order of mat, the, the matrimony service, that marriage is instituted by God, we talked about that, and then this line, regulated by the church. That we of all people, to take Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That we of all people in the church, those professing Christ, should be those who delight in this kind of faithful marriage. That we should do everything that we can to encourage it, to build one another up, uh, given the cultural current against this. Oh, go do what you want, get a younger version, do what feels good, that's not your real soulmate. Heck, what does it really matter? Say, we must stand in such a way to say, no, that, that way does not work. And I would say others, you know, you raised, which we'll talk about in, the moment, in a moment, but you'll talk about, and this phrase is even complicated, but b the biblical justifications for divorce, and there are biblical justifications by, for divorce that we just read, but I ask you, sometimes I get the impression that people are kind of looking for those in order to dissolve the marriage. It's as if, you know, you're introduced to a new game, and the first question you have is, well, how can I cheat so that I can win? Um, to say, no, there, there's a design here that marriages can become better 
I hope everyone here who's married knows that. You're in a tough place. Hey, marriages can become better as we keep our eyes on Christ, that, that behavior and uh, all that can be changed in Jesus as his spirit goes to work on us. And I've seen this many times where there have been hard marriages and a hard partner and stony hearts, and you're like, I'm not sure about this. Only, only by the grace of God is this going to make it. And, and it does because Jesus changes people, and, and he is for this. You know, I don't know where you're at today. Maybe somebody here, you know, you're looking at a colleague a little bit differently, that your spouse has been particularly annoying to you lately. They don't look at all like they did when you married them. And mentally, you're towing a dangerous line here. Say, I pray that today, as God would have it in Luke 16, 18, where we're at in our study, that you would say, wait a second here. (laughs) There's something much more at stake than whatever I'm feeling. And no price, no price is worth an affair. Now, John, you know, John said that I don't go a Sunday without quoting a dead English poet. Um, So I'm going to quote T.S. Eliot who's a dead American poet, if you allow his birthplace to count, St. Louis. So T.S. Eliot, complicated man, intelligent man, had an affair, and eight years later in a personal letter, he said this, he said, I I think of that adultery, that affair, and I quote, left a taste of ashes which I can never forget. A smart man, a gifted man, an extremely popular man, believe it or not, as a poet, he was a sensational uh, presence. He said, I'll never forget that affair that I had. It was painful. I did the wrong thing. It wasn't worth it. I think in a moment that shocked a lot of people, I've listened to this a few times in my life, but back in 1991, Ted Turner was doing an interview with David Frost. Now, if you know anything about Ted Turner, he really hates God. I mean, just listen to what he says. And Frost is doing the interview, and he asked Ted Turner the question, well, do you have any regrets in life? You know, a pretty common question, I suppose, from a successful guy. What are your regrets? Long, uncomfortable pause. And in what I think caught both Turner and Frost off guard was Turner got a bit emotional. And in response to that question, he says, yes, the way I treated my first wife. You see, Elliot, Turner, talk to people who've had affairs, who've went down that path. It's just not worth it. It's painful. It's painful for everybody involved. It's it's outside of of what God has ordained. And I pray today, you know, what's the old saying? Uh, You know, prevention is better than cure. And today's a day to say, know what? God has gifted me a spouse. He has ordained it. The way that we work through our current troubles will ultimately bring glory to him, that there's a church family who supports me in this endeavor. There are resources. That's the way to go. And a a fruitful marriage and a joyful marriage is a great gift. So long, faithful marriage is God's design. Secondly, if I may, I know, again, this is hard. But here's the truth. Divorce is a reality in a broken world that we all have known divorced people. We've experienced divorce. I know I see some of your faces right now. You've been through this hard moment. It is consistently, if you ever look what stresses people out, like the the hardest thing physically, emotionally, a person can endure is, is a divorce. There's not even really a close second. It is a hard thing. 
And what happens, because of everything that I've said so far about marriage, what happens is that people can start to think that this is a real scarlet letter in the church, to say, okay, if I go to a church like Providence, you know, this is an unforgivable sin. It's like I got a, a, a big scarlet D on my chest or something, and, and this church that talks so much about the importance of marriage, here I am. I pray that we as a church would, would think deeply about how we love and care for the broken and the hurting and how we respond to those who've experienced a divorce. You know how hard it must be for a divorced person to come to a place like Providence? But if we just take a time to listen, you'll say that oftentimes that those who are here who have been divorced have been the offended party. They've been those who said, yeah, my wife ran off with another guy. She went back to work after raising our children, and off she went or vice versa, or, or a non-believing spouse has abandoned this person. You say, don't we want to be the kind of church that says, well, we don't want to brand that person as particularly shameful or an unforgivable sin when we know how hard this is? Rather, let's say we're, we're a church family that all of us have not gotten this right. You know, I'm a very flawed uh, spouse, and I, I'm flawed in all these ways. Can, can we receive divorced people in a manner that allows Christ's blood to be the balm for them, the healing balm for them. I pray that that's the case. Maybe some here today, you, you're divorced and you're remarried. I think the Bible permits remarriage. I've done a number of remarriages that when there's sexual immorality, uh, when there's abandonment, you know, issues of abuse that we deserve time in a sermon themselves, that these issues resulting in divorce, uh, divorce biblical justification for divorce, that that person is then free to, to remarry. And sometimes what I find is that those who are remarried become the greatest, uh, th their testimonies are so powerful because they'll say something like this, you know, I, I was young and I married somebody who I knew the Christian community told me they were wrong, there was the wrong choice, they didn't believe in Jesus, and boy, was that painful. But now, as I've done it God's way, God's provided me with just the right person, and look at what a stable life we've had, because we've done it by his design. So if you're divorced and remarried, I would say you, you actually have a very strong voice to uphold the church in this truth. Others, you know, you're, you're single, you're like, well, what's this have to do with me? Say, I know my single friends from college they're oftentimes the greatest discouragement in marriage. Well, look at you, Shaw. You got very boring, or whatever they'd say. Um, <laughs> you know, preaching about this now. Um, so if you're single to say, you know, maybe you, you long to be married, and, and you long to have a, actually a marriage like the one we described in the first half of this. Say, well, you, you, you live it out. You trust in God's plan. You uphold the truth of it. You wait on God's good timing. You encourage the, the marriages that, that do exist. So I'll land this plane here, the hour's late. So if you're a married couple who profess Christ, I pray, first and foremost, that it's a great delight and that this is more of a re refreshing reminder to you to say, you know, I have received a great gift. Marriage is wonderful, and I, I don't know where I'd be without my spouse. I pray that's the case. But maybe you're a Christian, and you just say, you know, our marriage is not where it ought to be. I pray you see you have a church family that will come around you, that there are resources available to think about this, that marriages do improve, and that there is a way forward into the kind of marriage that God designed. Others today, you're not a Christian. You're here because your family at Memorial Day made you come. And uh, maybe you never thought about a purpose of marriage. You say, that's 
that's weird. Does marriage have a purpose? I thought it was just like, well, this is what I was supposed to do, or, you know, I'm kind of stuck, or, you know, as long as this works for me, or whatever your mentality would be. I hope today you say, well, wait, there's a higher calling in marriage that as I receive the gift of Jesus, recognizing my own sinfulness and selfishness and sensitivity in marriage, that I can receive Jesus that'll go to work on me. And as I live this out with my spouse, I take on this kind of eternal purpose of drawing others into this fantastic illustration of Christ's unconditional love for the church. So friends, may we, the key point, the church upholds the truth. The truth is that God has a design for marriage and we should delight in it and encourage each other in it. So the church upholds the truth and also offers grace. We offer grace to those who have been hurt by this very painful prospect of divorce. May we do that. Stand up for marriage, love the divorced. Stand up for this great institution, defend it, cherish it, but also love those who are hurt and broken. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, uh, word here where we, we, we flirt culturally with exactly what the Pharisees were doing. I have found, quote, some indecency, or we just excuse it as some indecency when really what it is is it's using, rationalizing our quest for our own pleasure and we say I'm done with this um, this idea of marriage I'm doing my own thing help us to see that it's part of your timeless word as Jesus is saying here not one word not one dot will be removed from the law of God and that when we play with these things that are anchored in your created order and nature that we really uh, flirt with dangerous things so Lord help us as a church to have strong marriages as we pray regularly help us to be those who encourage one another to be faithful partners uh, to live out to, to treat uh, the husband and the wife would treat each other in a way that reflects jesus's heart and lord i pray for others that even as they would think back that there would be much many hard things that have been stirred up this morning that they would once again look on the blood of your son jesus and how it avails for us how it covers all of our transgressions, how he heals all of our wounds, and that we would be a church that would love and encourage, and that through this, that we would once again be an example to a non-believing world that seems to have lost its way. May Christ be lifted high.